Uh, this is Overnight on ABC Radio. Coming up pretty soon, David Kilby with The Quirk and The Dead and The Quirk. You're going to love it. But before we get to that, Celeste Katzmaston is with us in the United States, in Boston. In fact, uh, Celeste, good morning. Well, good evening. Good afternoon. Morning. Yeah. Good Look, afternoon. Once again, and I don't know how many times, and, and I was talking to somebody about you know this latest shooting, and they said, oh, maybe this will be the catalyst for change. But I remember that being said on many occasions in the past. Do you think that this particular school shooting where someone just went into a school and opened fire on children, do you think that anything will happen, any change, meaningful change, will occur to prevent these things from happening in the future? I think we've asked that question and had it answered for us many, many times. I, I mean, the, the bottom line is this is the 27th school shooting in the United States this year. This year. It's not even June yet. We're not even halfway through the year. So it's very difficult for me to come on here in good faith and say that this is going to be the moment that uh, the United States figures out that we have a mass violence problem with guns in this country, because we could have said that after Parkland, we could have said that after Columbine, we could have said that after Newtown, we could have, I can keep going. And that's the problem. I can keep going. So the answer is, I don't know, but if history tells us, probably not. So people always say when this sort of thing happens, and it happens so often, not only schools, but, you know, wherever they are. There was a shop, you know, in Buffalo, New York, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and 10 people were killed, I think, there. People always say, oh, well, the NRA, they're the lobby group that is stopping any meaningful gun reform. But is it the NRA? And, and why do they have so much power? It's not just them. I'm sure there are other gun groups as well. But why do they have so many Republicans, let's be honest, in their control? I think it's a combination of things, as it often is. There's no question that the gun lobby, the spending of the gun lobby, has been influential in this country. Uh, there is uh, obviously a financial incentive for the gun lobby to be involved in politics, and I think we all understand that. Of course, you know, I've attended uh, NRA events, uh, you know, in the course of covering them, uh, you know, my work as a reporter. And it's always very interesting to me that, you know, typically I go to these events to cover them because there's some major politician appearing at them. And at those events, uh, handguns are not permitted, uh, you know, so yes. this group that's supposed to be championing the Second Amendment, um, you know, does have events where for safety reasons, guns are not permitted. So that's always kind of um, an interesting juxtaposition to me. I mean, the other thing that happens here, though, is that there is certainly a core of people generally on the right in this country who feel very, very strongly that the Second Amendment is completely inalienable, that it is exactly what it says, that it has to be followed out word for word in their interpretation of it is that people have the right to carry guns. You have the right to bear arms. And so the way the political system works in the United States is that these people essentially vote in primaries. They are a segment, active, the most active voters are the people who vote in primary elections. They're the most active, reliable voters, and they support candidates who feel the way they do. And they um, support candidates to oust those people uh, if they don't go along with the program. So you have a small group of people determining who the candidates are. Uh, then you go to a general election. And so you have people who are, uh, you know, a very small group of people, 100 senators that essentially can 
um, advance or block legislation to change the gun laws in this country. So if you think about it, um, do, do the gun laws that we have now represent the feelings or desires or opinions of the vast majority of Americans? I would say they do not. Um, the vast majority of Americans, including registered Republicans, support background checks for people buying guns online, gun shows, you know, universal criminal background check. But, you know, do we have that right now? Do we have laws that would prevent some of these killings? Not as many as we could. And I think that's why. So just going to the Second Amendment, they always leave out that part about a well-regulated militia. And that was in a, because back in the old days, back when this was first written, there was no standing army in the United States. And in order to prevent, or, you know, the British invading or whatever, they had these local militias who were able to keep weapons. That's what it's about. It's not about anyone being able to have any gun that they want. They ignore the well-regulated militia. There is no well-regulation at all. What is their response when anyone brings that up? Yeah, you know, it's really hard to, to have a, a legitimate response to that. There are people who consider themselves uh, constitutional conservatives or, you know, strict constitutionalists. They believe that the Constitution uh, is enshrined and you have to follow the exact wording that there just isn't a lot of room for interpretation and that the document was designed to stand the test of time. It, it's almost like a feeling that the Constitution is is such a, a powerful document and such a wise document that it applies through societal changes, through historical changes, that you don't need to reinterpret it because it stands It stands up no matter, uh, you know, what's going on around it. Um, so do you think, and, and Chris has texted in, as religion plays such a big part in the US society and politics, what do religious leaders and lobby groups do to try and change attitudes? I'd be interested to know about that, attitudes to firearms. I mean, do any, because they tend, they tend to be on the extreme right of the Republican Party anyway. Are they all pro-gun as well, religious leaders? Why aren't they coming out against it? That's, I mean, then that's kind of an interesting question, depending on the church and what kind of church. There's sort of more or less wiggle room for people to uh, espouse political views or, you know, encourage people to take a political action or have a political sentiment, um, you know, that varies across different faiths and different traditions. Um, but yeah, you know, again, I think that, you know, we are seeing a relatively small part of the population, no matter how you cut it, whether it's politically, whether it's by faith or any of those things, um, you know, that really supports having a complete lack or a general lack of regulation of of weapons. And, and as you said, you know, there are we, we're the only country that has this problem now. And, you know it's hard to get around the fact that it's because we have a lot of guns. I think other countries have violence. They have may have racial or ethnic violence. They may have, uh, you know, mental health problems. You can imagine during a pandemic, I'm sure lots of different countries have been dealing with lockdowns, economic crisis. People have mental health issues to deal with. There are socioeconomic differences. There's uncertainty. There's a lot of stuff. People fight. People get angry. The difference in the United States is that people can get easy access to guns to do something about it. And when they do get violent, they kill many, many more people. Mm. And uh, as uh, Ian says, 
you know, the gun lobby is so powerful. Why isn't there a powerful anti-gun lobby? What are you going to do is, you know, get as many people together as possible. You know, there's a lot of billionaires in America. Why aren't they donating their money in, uh, to uh, buy off these politicians for the anti-gun lobby? Some of them are. Some of them are, no question. I mean, uh, you know, as a New Yorker, I covered Mayor Michael Bloomberg. He was a co-founder uh, with the mayor of Boston, as a matter of fact, of uh, Mayors Against Illegal Guns. And uh, Mike Bloomberg is uh, not a cheapskate when it comes to spending money to get what he wants politically. And you have, uh, you would think, you know, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people supporting groups like uh, Moms Demand Action. You know, I think that came out of uh, the Sandy Hook massacre in, in Newtown, Connecticut. Um, you have people signing on to these movements. Uh, you know, maybe uh, are they as well financed and, and sort of, you know, established as the gun lobby? No, but you saw, you know, tens of thousands of young people getting involved after the Parkland shooting at um, uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, I believe, school in florida yeah. uh so you know you have a lot of people mobilized but you know again the question is do the people who are mobilized have um that kind of political power and cachet and also it's just hard to change laws because of um you know the political hmm. dynamic we have particularly in the senate i'm changing them pretty quick after uh you know september 11 and you know a lot fewer people killed there than killed in guns or by guns every year because, as you also point out, guns killed more youngsters than cars for the first time in 2020. So we've got the figures from 2020. A 30% increase in gun deaths for people 19 and younger in 2020. So uh, it's getting it got worse in 2021, I think. Yeah, that was uh, the thing that was, I mean, obviously, it, that is just disturbing any way you look at it. But if you look at that study and those stats, what they found was there was a real racial disparity. Um, the kids who are dying are black kids. Um, they're the only group that are, you know, being killed more by guns than by cars. Um, Latino kids, white kids. Um, it's just not the same ratio. So it's it's not only a problem with young people, it's a problem with young people of a particular race. Yeah, and that's exactly what it is, isn't it? Because those white, mostly Republicans, don't care about the deaths of young black people. It's that simple, isn't it? I think that, you know, again, the problem in this, well, we have many problems and don't think it gives me any joy to say this on, uh, on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. But, you know, as an American, obviously, I can see that we have a ton of problems. We have illegal guns. We have guns in the wrong hands. We have too many guns. You know, there, there are lots of different explanations for why this is happening. But the thing we have to really confront is that, yeah, you know, gun ownership or the right to um, you know, the freedom to own guns. It doesn't give you the right to own a gun per se, but the right to bear arms. It's very, it's actually fairly nonspecific um, is enshrined in the United States in a very different way than it is in other countries. We are very different. And I understand we have revolutionary roots that there was a real, you know, concern and fear in the founding of this country about tyrannical government. Okay. I think that's legitimate. We're a revolutionary country. Um, we had a fight to be here. We're a relatively young country, but um, the yeah, that, times that have time changed. time has gone. That was 250 way, years ago. You know, there's no need you, to keep yeah, that. If you look at, right. So if you look at people who say, 
do you really think this is what the founding fathers envisioned? Is Do you think that this is what they wanted to encourage or to uh, aid and abet when they wrote those words? It's very hard to say. It's yeah. very hard to say yes to that. You know, in Australia and in New Zealand, they had a gun buyback program. Uh, that would probably send the government broke if they had a buyback program in the US, considering how many people have got guns and how many guns there are. We do have buyback programs. We definitely have them. And I, I think, you know, they're organized or promoted by, you know, not just police stations, but churches, community organizations. They have tried this to get these guns off the street. But now you've, I mean, you can print a gun on a 3D printer. Yeah. You don't even have to go out and buy it. You can, you can get the plans for that very, you know, fairly easily and literally do it yourself. You can modify guns to do different things. You can, you know, you've read all about these sort of bump stocks and, you know, extended magazines. It's just, you know, it's not just a matter of, you know, many guns, but it's many guns that can do more damage. We're not talking necessarily about guns for, you know, sportsmen or hunters. I mean, I personally can tell you that um, I have, you know, for many years done sporting clays, which is like skeet shooting. Okay. That is, requires me to use a gun. I don't think, but that's, you know, it's a 28-gauge shotgun. It is not an AR-15. And they are the ones that are causing most of these problems, well, at least the people who want to use them, who then buy them. I mean, the story of this particular case is horrendous, that the bloke basically bought one on his 18th birthday, uh, even though he had mental health problems. Uh, I think he killed his grandmother first, was it, and then went to the school. I mean, it's... Yeah, and the, you know he had announced sort of every yeah. step of the way right, on this exactly. path on social media. Yeah, no one did anything about it. All right, I don't know what they're going to talk about at the NRA convention, which is coming up in Houston, but uh, be interested. Now's not the time, as we know. Now it's not the time. But, of course, they can keep saying now's not the time to talk about a gun uh, massacre because they know that when it is the time, there'll be another one, and then it won't be the time to talk about it. But... Um, Two years since the death of George Floyd, I think, uh, and you know, there's a lot of discussion about how the police ought to respond or the funding the police, defunding the police. What's the president been saying? Yeah, he just signed an executive order that's basically supposed to provide reforms to policing. Didn't go quite as far as he wanted it to go, but you know, these things again, typically it comes down to a a big compromise, and this is talking about. Uh, you know, doing a number of different things. It, for example, it limits the uh, amount of surplus military equipment that can go to um, that can go to police departments. It, it provides, you know, sort of better data tracking, record keeping, accountability type measures. That's very general, um, but you know, it's it's uh, again doesn't go as far. The uh, the version of the bill that passed the House but not the Senate would have banned chokeholds, no-knock warrants, you know, the things that yeah. we typically see in these these cases, um, you know, uh, yeah. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, these these sorts of things. So, I mean, is it a step forward? You know, yeah, I mean, people are happy to see some progress, but um, it it encourages people to restrict some of these most disturbing actions, but it doesn't sort of outright ban them. You know, one of the things, and we may have discussed this in the past, there are 50,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States. 50,000. That's 1,000 per state. 
obviously, on average. How do you regulate all of them? Don't. You don't. I mean, police officers, in some respects, in most respects, are uh, subject to the same laws as civilians, right? I mean, you should not, you don't have the right to, you know, sort of commit murder for no reason or to, um, you know, beat the hell out of somebody because you feel like it. I mean, these things are supposed to be done within the confines of the law, within the confines of of training, within the confines of oversight. But yeah, I think that, um, you know, it's, a, it's sort of an interesting time to be talking about that too, because uh, a lot of people right now looking at the mass shooting that we just saw in Texas right now, at, like at this moment, there is a very, very big debate. And a lot of people are extremely angry for thinking that um, the police did not act as they should have uh, in that situation, that they delayed going into the building to, you know, to help those kids. Um, and so the question is, is sort of more policing the answer to stopping mass uh-huh. shootings? You know, that's that's a story for another show, I suppose, because you could do a whole show on that. Exactly. And uh, there is an election in um, Texas this year, isn't there? Is there a governor gubernatorial election? Is that this yeah, year? we have we have midterm elections. Yeah. So there are a bunch of different, you know, the uh, attorney general, I think, is is up there. I believe, um, you know, there there's a number. I mean, a number of different states are having not every state has every office. No, open, but I mean, but... Beto O'Rourke is running against Greg Abbott to be governor of Texas. And I will be interested to see whether or not this has any uh, influence on that because there was an incident at here, the the governor's press conference where Beto Rock started asking him questions and was escorted out. Uh, Monkeypox, oh my God, monkeypox! Haven't we heard enough of these things? Now that's well, it's hard to catch. We are told, and you can recover from it. But boy, it's all over the place, including in Massachusetts. Yep, we are lucked out again. Boston was actually one of the earliest sort of cluster outbreak sites for the uh, for the COVID COVID nineteen virus at a, at a convention here, uh, and so now we have the uh, you know dubious honor of being a host to a case of monkeypox at Massachusetts General Hospital. But they are saying that we do have on hand um, smallpox vaccines in a, a national stockpile, like a lot of them. They're not just handing them out. It's not like you go get your COVID booster and they give you like a bonus monkeypox shot. But this is for healthcare workers who were possibly exposed to the virus. At the moment, we are not looking at a national outbreak or a lockdown or, or any any sort of thing like that. But, um, you know, hopefully yeah. people are paying more attention to contagious disease after what we've been through. Well, let's hope so. Now, Glenn thinks that the best news in Boston is that the Celtics are only one win, one win away from the <laughs> NBA finals. But the real news is, well, uh, it comes from Jaws. 1975, there was uh, one of those kids in the water who was pretending to be a shark. He's grown up and he's basically taken... Roy Scheider's place, hasn't he? Yeah, so the the movie is about this police chief that's trying to stop the killer shark, right? And he's got, you know, Richard Dreyfuss and his buddies trying to help him out. And there's all these people that are goofing on him, including these kids who put this fake dorsal fin in the water to pretend like there's a shark. So that kid is... then that film, that uh, film was made largely in uh, Martha's Vineyard here in Massachusetts. So one of the kids with the fake fin in the movie is now the police chief 
of uh, of Edgar Town, um, you know, in Martha's Vineyard. So sort of art imitating life or life imitating art, but uh, you know, full circle there. I love it. Uh, I mean, it's bizarre that we end on a happy note about a uh, shark that ate people. But anyway, uh, let's hope that it'll be a good summer there at Martha's Vineyard and uh, no shark attacks. Celeste, thank you very, very much. Uh, we will talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Always a pleasure. Celeste Katz-Marston in Boston, Massachusetts. On ABC Radio, you with Rod Quinn.